Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number four. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a how truth long we saw it. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, I'm Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We'll have some lighthearted, lighthearted moments for you today and some that deal with sad topics. Yet we think you'll appreciate the positive outcomes. Steve will begin with a story by Peter Lavelle from Passageways, from the Passageways short story collection my critique partners and I put together last summer. Peter's protagonist is a young girl who's at the county fair with her 4-H project, a steer named Kyle. I was also in 4-H when I was young, but my projects were more domestic in nature. I made biscuits and cakes aprons and dresses, and displayed them at the Platte County Fair in southeast Wyoming. I'd like to tell you I won lots of blue and purple ribbons, but to be honest, I don't remember back that far. 4-H is a great place to prepare for life, even if you've never entered one of your own projects in the county fair. I think you'll enjoy Peter's story entitled Grand Champion. Grand Champion by Peter Lavelle. Morgan pulled her steer's furry head down to chest level to comb the hair between his big brown eyes. This was it. Her last time to care for Kyle. Blinking back tears, she brushed across his wide back and down his hip and moved to the other side. She'd already shined his hooves with shoe polish. Above the fair and carnival noises, she could hear the auctioneer's voice through the arena loudspeaker calling for bids. In just a few minutes, Kyle would be the animal in the spotlight. He'd be sold to the highest bidder, and the new owner would haul him to the slaughterhouse tomorrow. She tried to push the thought from behind, from her mind, but as she fluffed the steer's tail, she felt panic rising in her chest. When her fourth grade class toured a meatpacking plant last spring, she'd recognized the pungent manure aroma that permeated the stockyards but she hadn't been able to put her finger on the smell inside the building. The odor reminded her of old tennis shoes and seemed to grow stronger the deeper they shuffled through the endless concrete hallways into the bowels of the plant. Was it blood or death she smelled? Dread clashed with curiosity in her gut and threatened to unsettle her breakfast. Finally, the group slowed to file through gray doors with eye-level windows held open by two tall men. Both wore long, white aprons and had hairnets around their hair and beards. The boy in front of her snorted and elbowed his friend. Morgan rolled her eyes. Boys made fun of everything. Once they entered the cold, sterile room, her classmates clustered in small groups on the cement floor. Their hushed conversations echoed, uh, echoed between the high block walls. Morgan's friend, Sarah, whispered, I asked my mom to let me stay home this morning, but she said this would be good for me. And my dad said the same thing. Morgan looked around the room, all the while trying to ignore the dead cow hanging by one leg from chains attached to a track on the ceiling. She thought she saw the cow twitch 
and even though she knew it had to be her imagination, she cringed. From behind long, clear plastic strips, another man with a hairnet on his head stepped into the room, greeted them, and slid the animal close. When he explained that the cow was not dead, but had been rendered unconscious by an electrical shock to the head, a chill shot through Morgan. The cow was still alive. The man was going to kill her right in front of them. She spun around and slipped to the back of the group. The butcher pointed his big knife at her. Want to help? She shook her head. The other men chuckled. The man with the knife talked as he worked. First, he slit the cow's throat. Morgan moaned. She was sure she saw the animal shudder, but everyone else seemed focused on the blood that drained from the gaping wound into a grate in the floor. Next, he split the abdomen open to remove the intestines. Morgan tried to listen, but her attention was riveted on his apron. Like time-lapse photography on high speed, the cloth was quickly transformed from white to bright red all the way down the front. She'd learned in science class that life was in the blood. Before their eyes, the cow's life was draining out of it. When the butcher began to skin the animal, three of the kids, a boy and two girls, threw up, and an aide took them to the bus. The man waited until the other men cleaned up the mess, and he had everyone's attention again before he continued his lecture. He told them that after they left, an employee would slide the carcass along the ceiling rail to the cooling room, to be aged for a minimum of two weeks. During final processing, the beef would be quartered and the meat cut into steaks, roasts, and stew meat, or ground into hamburger. Brandishing his knife, the butcher concluded with, and that, boys and girls, is where your meat comes from. The next time you bite into a double-decker hamburger with all the trimmings, be sure to thank the cow who sacrificed her body for you. More than one person had groaned after that comment. Morgan was one of them. She could see the, the solemn expressions on her classmates' faces when they loaded onto the school bus to return to school. They'd all lost a bit of innocence that day. Following the tour, she'd done some research to find out what dying was like for cattle in slaughterhouses. One source said insufficient amperage. She'd had to look up both words could paralyze an animal, but it would still be aware of what was happening and feel pain. She'd also learned that hanging heavy cows by one leg often caused their bones to break. Morgan had tried not to think about the terror of dying tortured and alone, but she couldn't stop herself from imagining their agony. She sighed and leaned against her steer's broad cheek. He was destined for a horrible death. I'm so sorry, Kyle. There's nothing I can do. She heard the gate clink and lifted her head. Her father stepped into the pen. What are you doing, Morgan? She looked away. I told you not to name him. He dropped to one knee and took her hand. Eye to eye with his daughter, he said. I know how difficult this is for you, but you need to learn we raise beef for food, not pets. He pulled a bandana from his back pocket and wiped tears from her face. We can't get attached to the animals. It's just too hard when it comes time to let them go. He squeezed her shoulder and stood. Why did you name the steer after your brother? Before she could answer, he said, Kyle is gone, Morgan, and he's not coming back. Your mother and I have both discussed this with you. She didn't respond. Someone screamed, let me off. 
followed by the sound of the roller coaster barreling to the bottom of the first slope. Her father blew out a long breath. I know you blame me for his death, Morgan, but it wasn't my fault. Kyle fell from the hayloft. She wanted to tell her dad she didn't blame him, but the words wouldn't come. As for the name, she was just trying to keep her brother's memory alive. He knelt before her again. This time his expression was stern. You will walk that steer out there, you will watch him be auctioned off, and you will use the money you receive to buy more cattle. Do you understand me? Tears running down her face. All she could do was nod. Finally, she said, I don't want him to go to the butcher. Has to, or the steer can't be sold to the grocery store. He got to his feet. Health codes. Looking at Kyle, he said, the steer looks great, ready to show. They'll be calling for him before long, so get him over to the arena pronto. As soon as he left, Morgan threw her arms around Kyle and sobbed into his firm yet soft neck. Not long after the steer, uh, the slaughterhouse tour, she'd run away from home, traveling down the river with the steer ambling behind her. Although he slowed now and then for a bite of grass, Kyle didn't need a rope. He had followed her everywhere he could since he was a calf. When they stopped for the night, she'd slept on the ground, snuggled up against his solid frame. The next morning, a deputy found them and called her dad, who brought a stock trailer and took them both home. Kyle shifted. Morgan straightened and wiped her face with her shirt sleeves. Selling her steer wouldn't be so bad if she knew he would die peacefully and painlessly. She dried his neck with a towel and recombed the hair. How could she make sure he didn't feel the knife slice through his throat and death creep into his body? She considered bribing the butcher like she'd learned in history class. Men facing firing squads sometimes paid the shooters to aim for the heart so they'd have quick painless deaths. She could use the money she earned from Kyle's sale. But what if her father found out? And where would she get the money for more livestock? She studied the steer. He munched hay as if he didn't have a care in the world. What if she ended his life herself? Her dad had a twenty-two pistol in his truck. If she held it close to Kyle's head, she could end his life quickly without pain. Her brother had told her that that's what father did when he put their old dog down. Morgan whispered, I love you, Kyle, and kissed his cold nose. One last hug, and she ducked between the bars to scurry through the barn and past the crowd on the bleachers. She ran to where her father stood on the dusty sidelines. The big overhead lights made the arena brighter than day, but the bull on the auction block didn't seem to notice. Her dad put his arm around her shoulders. You okay? She nodded and forced a smile. I'm good, Daddy. I can do this, but I forgot to check my hair. Can I have the truck key? I left my comb in the glove box. He grinned. You look fine, darling. Digging into the front pocket of his jeans, he retrieved the keys and handed them to her. Here you go. He pulled back his shirt sleeve to, ex to expose his watch. Don't forget, you have to show in a few minutes. I'll be right back. Morgan hurried through the dim parking lot winding between vehicles to her dad's old pickup. She shoved a key into the lock on the passenger side, but it didn't work, and neither did the next key. Maybe it was because her hands were shaking. She fumbled for another key and dropped the whole set. Falling to her knees, she ran her hands across the gravel. She had to hurry. The auctioneer was calling for the next steer. 
Finally, she found the keys and jumped to her feet. The first one she tried worked. She flung the door wide, opened the glove compartment, and grabbed the gun. Morgan looked around. No one could see her. Even so, she was thankful the interior lights in her dad's old truck didn't work. She tucked the pistol into the front of her pants, pulled her shirt over it, and hustled back to Kyle. Her father stood outside the pen, leaning against the rail. She folded her arms across her midsection. Had he seen the bulge? He held out his hand. Your hair looks worse than before. Morgan shrugged and dropped the keys on his palm. He gave her a funny look. See you at the arena. And then he laughed. She slid a halter over Kyle's head, clipped his grand champion ribbon to the side of it, and snapped on the lead rope. Together they left the pen and made their way through the barn that smelled of manure and straw. Walking with a gun in her pants felt weird, but she had to do what she had to do. Two cows mooed as they passed by. She imagined they were wishing her steer good luck. He returned the greeting. Morgan reached the chute and took a deep breath. She could see her parents seated in the front row of the stands. All around them sat business owners prepared to bid on her grand champion steer. The price would be high. Whoever purchased the champion would be mentioned on the evening news and featured in a front-page article in the newspaper. Other children cried when their animals were sold. They didn't have a plan like she did. Kyle's death would be on her terms, not the butcher's. She patted her steer's neck. She missed, um, she'd missed telling her troubles and his sweet look that said everything would be all right. But those talks would end tonight, along with Kyle's life. Morgan pressed her lips together. This was not the time to lose control. Her name was called. She walked into the ring with Kyle close behind. They approached the three auctioneers who stood on the auction block. One did the talking and the other two helped spot the bidders. They were telling jokes and making fun of each other, but quickly switched to praising the grand champion steer. They pointed out his muscle and perfect form and emphasized his good breeding. Morgan turned Kyle one direction then, and then another so the bidders could get a good look at him. Kyle chewed his cut and ignored the crowd, oblivious to the death sentence about to be passed. The auctioneer started the bidding at 2000 and the war began. He buzzed prices off his lips so fast Morgan wondered how anyone could understand him. The grocer nodded, and one of the helpers erupted with a, Hey! Morgan held her breath. Oh, please, not the grocery store owner. Her family shopped at his store. The auctioneer continued the buzz, looking this way and that for potential buyers. The helpers pointed into the crowd, calling for bidders. Hey! They cried in unison as a trucker raised a finger. When would be the right time to do it? Morgan prayed she'd know the exact instant. One bullet or two? Better make it two, right after the auctioneer yelled, sold. The bid stopped. She tensed, going once, twice, to the trucker. The grocer lifted his chin, and an auctioneer shouted, hey! She swallowed. The bank owner cleared his throat and upped the bid. Morgan felt the pistol press against her belly. Still holding Kyle's lead rope, she adjusted the gun with her other hand. The bidding slowed at 10000 The grocer nodded again, bringing the price over 10000 The auctioneer pointed at the bank owner, saying, 11000 Over and over so fast, he sounded like a hummingbird. The banker coughed, and the crowd buzzed with excitement. Now that there were only two interested parties, the helpers were no longer needed. The main auctioneer pointed to the grocer. 
11-5, the auctioneer last, uh, insisted. Come on, 11-5, come on. The man lifted a thumb. And the crowd applauded. Attention turned back to the banker. Morgan pleaded in her heart for him to raise the bid. The auctioneer shouted, 12, come on, come on, come on, 12. The banker coughed. Back to the grocer. 12-5, 12-5, you got 12 and a half? A dip of the head. The crowd cheered as all turned back to the banker. Come on, 13, take this deal, come on. Morgan bit her lip. Please. The crowd was silent, all eyes on the banker. Finally, a soft head shake, and the crowd sighed as one. Thirteen? The auctioneers searched the bleachers for a new bidder. No one moved. No one dared move. Once, twice, sold. This year's grand champion steer is sold to the grocer. The crowd clapped. Now, Morgan told herself. She kissed Kyle on the nose and left and felt her courage slip until the image of him hanging by one leg filled her vision. I love you, Kyle. She lifted her shirt and pulled out the pistol. A woman screamed. Holding the gun with both hands, Morgan turned toward her. Someone yelled, she's got a gun. And people began, began to leap off the bleachers, scrambling to get away. Morgan turned. As she did, she noticed the crowd on the other side separating. She twisted the gun sideways to flip off the safety, and more onlookers ran. Like a wave, wherever she pointed, people parted. All three auctioneers headed her direction. She aimed the gun at them, and they retreated under the bleachers. She swung around. Kyle stood before her, patient as always. She leveled a gun at his head, but just as she was about to pull the trigger, strong arms wrapped around her, dragging her off the auction block. The gun fell from her hands and skidded in the dust. Kyle watched her go. She screamed and called his name, but he just looked at her. She kicked her captor, clawing at the hands that held her in an iron grip. Hearing a loud pop, she glanced up in time to see Kyle collapse on the arena floor in a billow of dust. Her father stood above the steer, the twenty-two in his hand. What in tarnation? The one who held her relaxed his grip. Morgan ran to her father. He dropped the pistol and wrapped his arms around her. Through her tears, she whispered, Thank you, Daddy, and peered up at his careworn face. She saw the sadness in his eyes, and she knew. Her dad missed her brother as much as she did. He wiped her tears from her cheeks. There's only so much sadness one heart can handle. Pulling her close, he held her until the world no longer mattered, until their hearts beat as one. Thank you, Steve. While we're on the subject of grief, here's a true story from On a Wing and a Prayer about a man who let sadness get the best of him. Um, this is uh, a chapter titled There Is No Tomorrow uh, by uh, an ex-inmate named Steve, not to be confused with my husband. <laughs> my grandma and grandpa both died when I was in the third grade. I loved them very much, and I loved to go to their farm. I liked to climb on the hay and play with the chickens and the bulls. After they died, I noticed there was something different about my family. Something had changed. That's when my dad and mom filed for their first divorce. My parents were both alcoholics, which caused a lot of trauma in my family. They eventually got back together and tried to work things out, but ended up getting another divorce. My brother Don was married by then. 
My sister Leanne and I went to live with my mom. We lived in some bad places. Sometimes we had to live with aunts and uncles. We were so poor, we stopped celebrating Christmas. My mom eventually met a guy in a bar who became my stepfather. He was also an alcoholic. I saw him beat my mom several times. When I stood up to him, I got my butt kicked, which was nothing new to me. More than once, my dad had beat me from one end of the house to the other with his fists. About a year after I graduated from high school, I moved to California because my brother and his wife lived there. I got a good job, but there was still something missing in my life. One night, I was sitting by the apartment pool when this woman from the complex came over to me and said, I've been watching you. I said, oh, have you? Yeah, you've slimmed down. You've lost some weight. I kind of like to get to know you. That's awful nice of you, I said, but you didn't want anything to do with me before. Why do you want anything to do with me now? Despite that comment, she stayed and we talked a bit. Then she said, why don't you come upstairs with me? We went to her apartment where she offered me cocaine. First time I ever did drugs in my life. I was 21 years old, and I remember thinking, I could really like this. One day, about a year after I started using cocaine, I looked in the mirror and was frightened by what I saw. You've got to do something about this, I told myself. So I called my sister, who was living in Wichita with her husband, Leroy. I was crying hard. I need to get away from here, I told her. It's killing me. She knew what I was talking about. My brother had noticed the changes in me and told her what he suspected. She said, if you can find a way to get here, you're welcome to stay with us until you get on your feet again. Shortly after that, I ran into one of my friends from Iowa. He said he was about to head back home. I asked, are you going through Kansas? Yeah, he said, I go right through Wichita. I did better in Kansas. I found a job and tried to be responsible. One day, my brother-in-law took me to a car lot and told me to choose the car I wanted. I said, what? You find the car you want, and I'll pay for it. You've been doing good. I don't mind helping somebody who's trying. I picked out a car, and he wrote a check for it. When I got home, I told my sister what Leroy had done for me. That's the way he is, she said. He's proud of you for trying. One evening, one evening my stepsister, Kathy, took me to a place called Porky's. It was a unique bar because he had phones in the booths, so you could call other tables and talk. We were sitting there visiting with each other when the phone rang. I said, are you going to get that? Kathy said, why don't you get it? Nah, you get it. She picked up the phone, listened, and said, it's for you. What? I talked a little bit, and then this girl stood up at another table. We're over here, she called. Why don't you and your girlfriend come over and join us? I laughed, knowing Kathy was my stepsister, not my girlfriend. Okay. I guess we can. We walked over to their table and, and introduced ourselves. My new friend's name was Trina. She said, Why don't you and your girlfriend sit down? I laughed again, but we sat down. Then the music started. Trina wanted to dance. Do you think your girlfriend would mind if we danced? She asked. I laughed. She said, What's so funny? Kathy is my stepsister, not my girlfriend. Trina and I had a good time dancing together. When I looked into her eyes, I felt something different, something I had never felt before in my life, something very good. We were married within six months. My mom adored Trina. Everybody adored her. She was just that type. Soon we had a baby boy we named Jeremy. Trina already had a son from a previous marriage. I was content and happy. 
with our little family. Then Trina's grandmother died. She lived next door to us, and her death was very upsetting to my wife and her parents. Trina's mom and dad decided there was nothing left in Wichita to keep them from moving to Arkansas, where they owned property. They wanted us to go with them, so we did. About a year later, Trina began having really bad headaches. When she put her glasses on, however, the headaches eased up. I told her, you probably need to have your prescription changed, and picked up the phone book to find an optometrist. The day of her appointment, I received a call at work. This is the eye clinic. We've just admitted your wife to the hospital. What's going on? I asked. The doctor said, I'm concerned because there seems to be some kind of blockage. At the hospital, they found a brain tumor the size of a grapefruit. I called the one person who was always there for me, my sister. But after I said hello, I was too upset to talk. Leanne said, Steve, what's wrong? It's Trina, isn't it? How did you know? I felt it. Trina has a brain tumor, I told Leanne. They're going to operate on Thursday. My sister came immediately. Trina was in surgery for 18 hours. They were able to get, get most of the tumor, but there were areas they couldn't get to. I was the first to see her after the surgery. She looked like she'd gone too many rounds with Muhammad Ali. Her eyelids were bruised and her face was swollen. Her beautiful long brown hair had been shaved off. It was hard for me to look at her, but I had to be strong. Waiting by her bedside was the most difficult thing I've ever done. Somehow I made it through. Within a couple days, Trina was sitting up in bed. She was a strong woman. One day we were talking together in her hospital room, just the two of us, and she asked me, How long do I have to live? Her doctor had given me an estimate of the time she had left. But, he said, one thing I never do is tell my parents how long they have to live. If I do, they might give up and die. I told Trina, I need to go smoke a cigarette, and left. Trina's family and my sister walked outside with me. I said to them, Trina asked me how long she has to live. What do I tell her? I looked at Trina's mom, who was so close to her daughter. She said, I don't know what to tell you, Steve. I looked at Leanne. For the first time in her life, my sister didn't have an answer for me. I can't tell you. That's something you're going to have to do yourself. So I smoked my cigarette and thought about what to say. Finally, I went back upstairs. When I walked in, Trina said, Are you going to answer my question? Yeah, I sat down beside her, took her hand, and looked into her eyes. We're just going to take this day by day, I said. What becomes of, becomes of it, becomes of it. That was the best answer I could give her. Trina seemed satisfied with my response. She was released the following Tuesday. We were new to that small Arkansas town and hardly knew a soul. Even so, people from different churches started coming over with food and money. They just kept coming. They paid our rent and our utility bills and other bills. I couldn't believe it. Trina soon began chemotherapy and radiation. It took a toll on her, but she was a fighter who was still there to be my wife and the mother to our boys. I told her, We've been through the worst, of, worst it could ever get, and we made it. What does that tell you, Trina? It tells me our love for each other is really strong. Then she started losing her hair again. Her speech became slurred, and I saw other signs the doctor had warned me about. I thought, I can't do this. At night, when I lay in bed holding Trina close, I could hear the doctor saying, when it happens, she'll go to sleep and not wake up. I couldn't live with that knowledge. So I started doing drugs again, my way of running from my problems. I told Trina, I can't watch somebody I really care about die and not be able to do a damn thing about it. 
I know I'm being selfish, but that's the way it is. Trina finally had to make a choice. Fighting for her own life while I was throwing mine away was more than she could handle. We divorced about nine months after the tumor was discovered. When I signed the divorce papers, I also signed away my rights to my son because Trina didn't want the boys to be separated. I signed away everything. I have no visitation rights and haven't seen Jeremy in almost 10 years. I don't know whether Trina is alive or not. I regret a lot of things I've done in my life, but leaving Trina and Jeremy is the thing I regret the most. I moved to Fort Collins, Colorado to be near my sister and started in on the drugs again. They kept me from facing reality. I didn't want to deal with the loneliness. As long as I had dope, I had women and I had power. People were paying attention to me, but they hung around me for all the wrong reasons. I knew that, but I didn't care. Then I started doing methamphetamine. Eventually, I manufactured the drug. When you make meth, you have to snort it, smoke it, and slam it to test it, because a bad batch out on the streets could kill somebody. I would rather kill myself. Sometimes I was high for more than a month at a time. I didn't eat or sleep, just drank Gatorade. I weighed around 110 pounds. I was way out of control, slamming anywhere from 30 to 70 cc's every two to three hours. One night I had a meth cook heating on the stove while I showered. When I got out, the phone rang. It was Patty, the person I was staying with at the time. The cops are here looking for you, Steve, she said. They're right outside. DEA agents and a SWAT team plus several members of the sheriff's department, probably about a dozen officers altogether, had surrounded the place. Their high-powered rifles were aimed at every possible exit. They wanted me, but they were also planning to bust Patty for being an accessory to a meth lab. I couldn't let that happen, so I tore the whole thing down and stashed it in a well under the floor of the house. I filled up some syringes with the remaining couple of grams of meth and stuck them all in my arms. Then I just sat there, holding a knife in front of me, trying to decide what to do. The cops kept calling and bothering me, which irritated me. Then something clicked in my head, and I thought, you put out your cry for help. The help is here. So I told the officer on the phone, give me an hour, and I'll be out. No, you need to come out now. Don't push me. You give me an hour, and I'll come out. Okay, you've got an hour. During that 60 minutes, I did some serious soul-searching. Searching, I told myself, if I go out there, I'll end up in prison. On the other hand, I thought as I stared at the knife, I have an easy way out. Which one do I do? Actually, the knife looked like the best alternative at that moment, but I got to thinking, it's not really the easy way out because I'll have to answer for what I've done. Deep down inside, I knew I would have to answer to God, and that knowledge scared me. After an hour of debate, I stood up and walked out the front door, blood trickling down my emaciated arms. I felt the tension in the air, and I also sensed the gun barrels tracking my every step. One officer walked up to me. You got a meth lab in there? I don't know what you're talking about. By the looks of your arms, he said, you don't have any dope left. Get in the car. Before I went to prison, I told the judge, I'm a drug addict, a heavy user. I started doing needles, and I really like it. I know I'm going to prison, which is fine. I probably need that. I need something hard, but when I get out of prison, I don't have any place to go. The judge sat back in his chair. What do you have in mind? I would like to go to Larimer County Daycare, as I call the uh, Larimer County Detention Center, until there is an opening in the halfway house. He agreed to that. He knew I needed help. 
and I knew I couldn't handle a return to the streets as soon as I was released. After a year in prison, I was transferred to LCDC. While I was there, I got into some trouble and was put into the hole, which is a 23-hour-a-day lockdown for three months. Donna Roth, the um, Freedom Fellowship jail chaplain, checked in on me now and then to see how I was doing. I was really gruff with her. I'm fine, and I don't need you. I know what you're doing. I kicked her to the curb, but Donna is an amazing person. She doesn't give up because she knows what's happening inside a person's heart. She kept bugging me to do some reading. Finally, I read a book she brought me called Free on the Inside. It was like deja vu because much of what happened in that book had transpired in my life. As I finished reading Free on the Inside, I broke down and fell to my knees. I've always chosen the wrong road, God, I sobbed. Yet for some reason, I'm still alive. This is me. You know me. Let's see what you've got. Let's try it and see. I can't guarantee that I'm going to be the ultimate Christian because that's not me. But I'll give it a shot. I bawled for days. I needed that. Then I began to feel something different inside me. It was like a new spark, like something was happening. I started talking with Donna. When I got out of solitary, Donna still came to see me. I went to some of the religious services, but nothing clicked, so I asked her for a Bible. She brought me one in modern English that I could understand. I read a lot in my new Bible and highlighted a bunch of stuff in it. I read all the passages about angels. I like angels. They are so cool. I also read other passages, like the one about the prodigal son. That story is the story of my relationship with my sister. Every time I came back, Leanne welcomed me with open arms. It gave me a really eerie feeling to read that story. One Friday night, I heard there was a religious service at the jail. I said, I ain't going to another one of those meetings. I won't get nothing out of it. But something told me, you better go to this one. The service was supposed to be for the women. However, there weren't very many women there, so they, so they let the guys join in. The speaker's sermon was about the woman at the well. Just as he started to preach, he turned toward me. There must have been an arrow over my head because he looked at me and instantly changed his sermon text. I think it was from the book of Jeremiah, something like, If you don't wash your hands of this and this and this, you will die. I felt like it was directed straight at me. I couldn't turn away. Afterwards, I got up and started to walk toward the speaker, then collapsed. He asked, Are you okay? as he helped me up. I said, I don't know. I can barely breathe. There's something going on inside me. The guy looked into my eyes. You're experiencing what I've been hoping and praying for. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit. Just let go. Let him fill you. I headed back to my cell, but collapsed at the bottom of the stairs. My good friend Wally helped me up to my cell and onto my bunk. Are you all right? He asked. No, I'm not. There's something going on, Wally, and I don't understand it. Just relax for a while. I couldn't relax. I felt goosebumps all over me, and I was so excited I couldn't sit still. It felt like fireworks were going off inside me, so I got up and started walking laps around and around the walkway. Finally, I stopped by a window, looked up at the full moon high in the night sky, and said, God, if this is what I think it is, I want it all. Don't just tease me. I want it all. Suddenly, I felt like I was being flushed with pure water, like I was getting cleansed and filtered. I said, God, I want more of it. That was the best high I ever experienced. I wasn't doped up. It took me three days to recover. My body felt like it had been run over by a truck. When I saw Donna a few days later, she knew immediately what had happened to me. After seven or eight months at LCDC, I was sent to the halfway house for eight months. I had been living on my own 
in my own place for a couple years, but I'm still vulnerable. I'm still fresh. I'm not used to this world. Put me in a world behind bars and I can handle that. I can adapt to that society. A world populated with people similar to me, people who live on the edge. I feel more accepted there than on the outside. My drug issue is a daily battle. There is no tomorrow. I only know that today I choose not to use drugs. I have to live one day at a time. Tomorrow may never come. I make the choice not to use drugs today because of God's love for me and my love for Him. I also make that choice because I'm learning to love myself and learning to appreciate the freedom I have on the outside to enjoy the world God created. Wow. It's, it's been a heavy podcast. So I'd like to end with a couple of poems about uh, animals you might have seen at the county fair this year. First one is called Cow. I saw a cow out in a field. It was down and fast asleep. And now I know the secret of how a butcher finds ground beef. Another short one, a shepherd's thoughts. I think of sheep about all the time, although I'd rather not. I focus on both ewes and bucks much more so than I ought. I fret for ample grassy fields. I worry round the clock. I'm OCD. I've got to stop and think outside the flocks. There's our humorous moment for the day. Um, We'll conclude with a quote quote, um, for you to consider as you go about the rest of your day. Um, This is uh, from John Hagee, and I have to get it so I can read it. Love is not what you say. Love is what you do. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Becky. And this is Steve. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.